Well, good morning. My name is Evan. And you know, as a, uh, as a child, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a church uh, in uh, Indianapolis, uh, just a couple hours north of here. And you know, my, my folks may not have had perfect attendance, but a majority of the time I found myself in a, uh, in a Sunday school classroom on a, on a Sunday morning. Now, I grew up in an era where uh, the most interactive Bible lessons were a poorly drawn picture uh, on the back of a, a flannel graph board. Does anybody remember flannel graph boards, right? Um, and so uh, I, I was one of those kids that, uh, man, you know, I, I, I like to be busy. Um, I, I like to be doing something. I like to be uh, moving. And so between the uh, stale animal crackers and the off-tune piano, um, I was uh, disinterested or distracted at, uh, at the least. But there's something I want to let you in on. It's a little secret to the early 90s Sunday school question. You see, when the teacher called your name and you were uh, thinking about the awesome bike ramp that you were going to make when you got home and get some mean air off of it, FYI, if you're still using the term mean, you're stuck in the 90s, all right? Uh, and uh, so I, I, would, I would be dreaming about this and the teacher would look out and she'd say something like, what does the little lamb on the flannel graph board represent to you? Or who fed 5,000 with, two, with uh, two fish and five loaves of bread? And uh, you could about 90% of the time, you could get the answer right by saying Jesus, right? 90% right? of the time, you were good if you said Jesus. Even if you were wrong, the teacher would like commend you for, for thinking of Jesus. It's, it goes like this, right? Who in the, in the Old Testament, what did the Old Testament point to? Um, Jesus? Yes, yes, right? Uh, who, who was born in a manger? Jesus. Who, who made uh, the men catch a lot of fish and then called them to be fishers of men? Jesus. Who was a carpenter? Uh, Jesus. Um, who who, uh, who, who put, made water turn into wine? Jesus. Who cut off the man's ear in the garden? Jesus. No, no, sweetie. Jesus didn't cut the man's ear off, but he did put it back on. Good thinking, right? I mean, that's how it worked. You were, you were like in good shape if you could just say Jesus to those questions. You know, I, I miss the life of Chili Bowl haircuts and 49-cent cheeseburgers and, uh, you know, the, the matching neon fluorescent uh, windbreaker suits. Like, my mom put me in those all the time as a kid. I'm like, come on, mom, give me some style. Give me some fashion right here. Um, but it seemed that life was, was simpler back then. It seemed like the answer was always easy. It was, it was Jesus. Now, questions have gotten bigger as I've gotten older. And the, the struggles have gotten, they've gotten more difficult. And, well, life has, has, has come. And I have to now answer questions like, how am I going to raise my three kids? Or how am I going to give my wife the support she deserves? Or how am I going to make it through this difficult day? How do I explain uh, dementia to my six-year-old daughter because grandpa is no longer grandpa anymore? What about the questions and the problems that you face. How are you going to make it through the day? How are you going to overcome that addiction? How are you going to make it through those financial struggles? How are you going to get out of the depression that you're in? How are you going to recover from this divorce? How are you going to make it through the pain and sorrow that is facing you today? What if I told you? What if I told you that that same Sunday school answer is right? What if nothing truly had changed about our world's problems and the questions? What if the answer was still Jesus? You know, the answer is Jesus. 
Look, we have problems and we have questions, but I think that childlike faith that Christ spoke about in the Word is a reminder to us that the answer can always be Jesus. Now, there's a situation found in the book of Acts in chapter 16. It's on page 898 in the Bible's in front of you if you want to turn there with us uh, this morning. I want to share with you a little bit about what's going on. I'll give you, like, set the scene a little bit for you, a little, a little synopsis of what's taking place. Story goes that the Apostle Paul and Silas, uh, Silas is a ministry partner of Paul's, they, they've been bouncing around from town to town doing ministry, and uh, they get to this town, and there is this woman who is possessed by, by a spirit. Now, the possession of the spirit in this woman's life has given her the ability to tell fortunes. Um, she, she can tell the future. And so there's a man that's capitalizing on the woman's uh, ability, and he, he's become her owner. And so this woman and this man are traveling around. Well, they, they, they catch up with Paul and Silas, and it says that the woman was just following them from place to place, um, and she was saying, these men were servants of God, and they're telling people about how to be saved, the way to be saved. For Paul and Silas, um, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Well, they were kind of already on some shaky ground. So it says it like this in verse 18. It says, Paul became so annoyed, Paul became so annoyed, that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to get out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, this, this woman's owner is upset, right? His money just went out the door with the spirit as well, right? And he, he's frustrated, so he, he decides to stir up problems for Paul and Silas. And it says that the people of that town stripped Paul and Silas of their clothes, and they beat them. And then they threw them into prison. Now, I'm not trying to make light of your problems, but I'm just going to tell you, Paul and Silas had some big problems here. Maybe uh, some, some, some difficulties that we may never face in our lifetime. And they had some big questions as well. Were they ever going to get out of prison? Why had they experienced this? How are they going to move forward? Why is God letting this happen to them? I'm sure those type of questions came to these two men's mind as they sat in prison. But then listen to what it says in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Don't you love that? These guys have just had the stuff kicked out of them. I mean, they, they, had just, they had just been beaten, why naked, in front of crowds of people. Now they're, they're sitting in a prison cell, and what are they doing? They're praying and praising God. You know what they're doing? They're turning to the answer. They're turning to Jesus. It says this in verse 26. It says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Now here's your moment, Paul. Here's your moment, Silas. Leave, run, you dummies, right? The answer has come. He's, he's dropped your, your shackles. The doors are open. Why aren't you fleeing? Well, they, they knew the answer already, and they knew that the jailer didn't have the answer. So they, they stick around. Now, the jailer says, says right, he was going to pierce himself with a sword. He was going to kill himself. He, that, the reason why was because if he was to have lost prisoners, that's the death he would have faced. But Paul and Silas say, 
no, no, no. Verse, verse 29, if you want to look back in there. It says, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So he asked him the question, what must I do? You got to believe in the answer, Jesus. Now, Paul and Silas didn't run because they wanted to bring the answer to this man. And then this man comes to know the Lord, and it actually goes on to talk about his whole household came to know Christ. And just kind of a side note, let me tell you this. You know that studies show that 7% of the time, if a young child comes to know the Lord, somebody else in the family will come to know the Lord, 7% of the time. Now, if it's a woman, it's a mother, or it's a, uh, it's a wife, if she comes to know the Lord, 17% of the time, a, a, another person in the family will come to know Christ. But listen to this. If the man, if the husband, if the father comes to know the Lord, 93% of the time, 93% of the time, somebody else in that family will come to know the Lord. Men, we have a responsibility as, as men to lead our families to the Lord to point them to the answer that is Jesus. You know, I love this story because when all seems lost, Paul and Silas are turning to the always answer of Jesus. And the answer, the answer changes everything. Not only for Paul and Silas, but the jeller and his entire family. You know, here at Bethany, we believe that. We believe that Jesus is he's the answer. What exactly does that mean? It means that we found that if, if Jesus is central to all that we do, we can't go wrong, right? And, and the, the world has problems. We can all start there. Doesn't the world have problems? Big, small, near, far, high, low. We can rattle off the problems in a list, right? War and famine and cancer and poison ivy. I hate poison ivy, right? And global warming and tyranny and corruption and oppression and death and daytime television. Oh, my goodness, right? Daytime television is quite the problem. This is just a, to name a few. Now, deep inside any human heart, I believe, is the nature of God. And Scripture tells us that we were created in the likeness of God, that we were created in His image. So I think deep inside all of mankind is a natural desire to do good. We have this, this, this thing in us that when we see problems, we oftentimes want to help remedy the problem. We want to, we want to solve the world's problems. I want you to meet a man. His name's Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs uh, in 2005 published a book um, called The End of Poverty and how we, can, how we can make that happen in our lifetime. Now, Sachs is not a Christian. He doesn't have a Christian worldview, but, but he has this desire to, to make a difference. And so he started trying to make this difference, but but about seven years later, some, some people looked in on his work, and they looked at all the, the, the work he had done to try to eradicate poverty and all these, these different uh, um, forms of economic development. And, well, let's just say this. The report found this, that he really hadn't made a difference, that he had failed. It actually went on to say that he had left the people worse off, that of the $120 million that he gave over to African aid and relief, that he actually created a dependency from these people and not and in no way help them to to move out of their their poverty. You see the world has a slew of problems and the world's going to continue to have those problems. But we believe Jesus is all they need. The remedy to those problems is always Jesus. Right? You see war and you see famine 
And you see things like human trafficking or terror or drug and alcohol addictions. You see things like abuse and families falling apart. And I think deep inside of us is this desire, I want to do something about that. I want to make a difference. I want to have purpose. Now, philanthropy is good, right? Philanthropy is handing money over to something. Philanthropy is good. But philanthropy, money, money doesn't fix the problems. Altruism, which is this like unselfish regard for yourself. It's thinking about the welfare of others. That's great, but you're, you're one person. You're not going to make the difference that you think you can make. Tolerance. Now, nah, tolerance is preached all over uh, right now, right? Opinion, tolerance on opinions, tolerance on lifestyles, tolerance on views. You know, tolerance is great, but tolerance isn't going to end hatred. And then there's sympathy. Now, sympathy is to be kind and compassionate. Those are things that Christ has called us to, right? But compassion, while good, ultimately leads to a dependency at times, which, what happens? Creates a whole new slew of problems. Look, the world has problems. No, the world has a problem. We know that problem as sin. Sin is the natural evil that lives in our heart, right? So just as there is the natural good in our heart, because we're created in the image of God, there is this natural evil, this inclination that that, uh, that causes problems. Jesus said it like this, in this world you will have trouble. Why? Because there's sin in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, I am all they need. I say they because if you are in Christ, you know, the word calls you set apart. Actually, there's, there's scripture in 1 Peter that calls you aliens and strangers in this world. We, we look different than the world. But those that are out side of Christ, well, they are, they are they. And oftentimes they don't believe they have a problem. You've been there before? Like, I don't have a problem, right? Ask a frat brother who spends most of his weekends completely hammered drunk if he has a problem, and he'll say, I don't have a problem, just having some fun, right? Ask a, a girl who's living in a homosexual relationship, believing that God is, has made her this way. Ask her if she has a problem. Let's tell you, I don't have, I don't have a problem, Ask the man who finds his fulfillment in all the toys and all the things that he can buy. Ask him if he has a, he has a problem. Say, I don't have a problem. Well, I, I could use some more money for my toys, but that's about it. Ask the politician who believes that by setting up laws so that, so that unborn babies can be killed, so that women can have rights to that, ask him, ask him if he has a problem. He'll probably say, you have the problem. In 1 Corinthians, God's word speaks of this. It speaks of the, the idea that oftentimes they don't realize they have a problem. Paul um, had been a man. I mean, Paul had been a man that was killing Christians. He was the guy. He was the one that thought, I don't have a problem. I'm doing the right thing. He thought he was doing God justice by going out and murdering Christians, people who stood for Christ. And suddenly his life is radically changed. He has this experience on his way. He, he's blinded. Now, Paul had been blind spiritually for quite some time. Uh, right? He, 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 was, he was completely off track. He had made it about a religion and not about a relationship. But, but now he has this encounter and he's blinded physically. Uh, so he's physically blind. He goes into this town. He's thinking, what am I supposed to do? And, and what, what he comes to is the answer of, of Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out this idea about how the message of Christ seems different to this world. It says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, the message about the Christ doesn't make any sense to lost people. But for those who are being saved, it is God's power at work. 
As God says in the scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of all who claim to be wise. I will confuse those who think they know so much. Your Bible may put it like this. The message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, the first step in fixing any problem is recognizing you have a problem. You know, our Celebrate Recovery ministry that meets at our Washington campus, it's, they have this, this first step. You know what their first step is? It's we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives have become unmanageable. You know what they're saying? We've admitted that, that we have a problem, and this world has problems. So, so how can we help the world see their problem? Do we stand on the street corner? Right? Do you stand on the street corner with a big sign in the air that says, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. God hates you. Is that what we say? Right? Do we, we stand with a big bullhorn in our hands and say, repent or burn. Is that what we're supposed to do? Right? I, I don't think condemnation is, is what God's called us to be about. Actually, the scripture would say that it's not our business to judge those outside of the church. Judgment and condemnation aren't the answer. You know what the answer is? It's Jesus. Listen to what the passage continues on in 1 Corinthians saying. What happened to those wise people? What happened to those experts in the scripture? What happened to the ones who think they they have all the answers? Didn't God show them that, that the wisdom of the world is foolishness? God was wise and decided not to let the people of this world use their wisdom to learn about him. Instead, God chose to save only those who believe the foolish message we preach. Jews ask for miracles, and Greeks want something that sounds wise. But listen to what Paul says. But we preach that Christ was nailed to a cross. We tell people about the answer of Jesus. You see, the world does have problems, and you know what the world needs? It needs Jesus. We are, we're not called to convict and convince. We're called to declare and display Jesus. You know, it's been said that the world needs you to show up today. You are powerful and you are valuable and what you believe changes the world. I believe that to be true. That the world needs Christ and you are the vessel of which God has chosen to bring them Christ. And the single most loving act that we can do for somebody else is to point them to Jesus. You know, about a year ago, um, I, uh, I had preached a sermon here, and the, the following day I got a letter um, or an email uh, in my email box. And I, I opened it up, and this is what the gal said to me. She said, I hope this email finds you well and rejoicing in the day that the Lord has given. I'm writing to inform you of some grave concerns from my experience at Bethany Christian Church last Sunday. I visited Bethany from out of town and was excited to visit a church and magnify the name of Christ with some friends. However, to my disappointment, the worship service was anything but worshipful. Uh Uh-oh. The sermon was well-spoken on the importance of community in people's lives. We were in a series on small groups, but did not mention the greater story of the Bible's redemption accomplished through Christ as a payment of man's sin. Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for sinners was not mentioned until a brief ending prayer. The lack of the gospel being preached is alarming to me as a believer. She went on to quote a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon saying, The model of all true servants of Christ must be, We preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour. No Christ in your sermon? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Ouch. Right? 
I mean, like, I opened that up uh, on Monday morning, and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm kind of walking around dejected. She went on to kind of nitpick me with some other things inside of that. I, I, felt, I felt pretty worthless. And while the sermon that day was on the importance of small groups, and by no means was not, I mean, it was biblically sound. It was chock full of scripture. Uh, we, we were talking through how small groups are something that we see here as a way to stay small. So I'm going to encourage you, if you're not in a small group, you need to be in a small group. Why? Because those people are going to point you to the answer of Jesus. But for this woman, she, she felt like she had come in expecting to hear something and had, had, had walked out missing, missing Jesus. Now, why did I share that letter with you? I share it for two reasons. First, I want you to know that we welcome the critics and the critiques. And I want you to know that if we're not lifting high the name of Jesus, and we're not pointing you to Christ, would you please tell us? We want to know that. The second I tell you is because here at Bethany, that's what we believe, that Jesus has to be the central thing, that Jesus is the answer. Why do we, we do that? Well, we believe that Jesus is all we need. Just as much as Jesus is all they need, Jesus is all we need. You know, look, Jesus didn't come to tell us the answers to the questions of life. Jesus came to be the answer, right? And, and we know that. So if, if we believe that, that, that Jesus is the answer, then we need to exalt him. We need to, to lift him up. We need to, 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 to bring attention to him. Now, that doesn't mean that every sermon is going to be based off of John 3.16, and you're going to hear this huge message, and I'm going to, uh, going to try to convict you into the baptistry every single Sunday morning. That's, that's just not, not, not what we're going to do. Because you remember what the scripture we looked at last week, uh, the, the Great Commission? Do you remember that? It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know what that, that passage is saying? It's saying that the church has the responsibility not only of calling men and women to the saving grace of Christ, but then helping them to be transformed into the disciples that God has called them to be. You see, God has not solely called us into the life-saving business. He's called us into the life-training business. That means that we are called to be salt and light in this world. Salt meaning that we preserve Christ, that we keep him central. And, and we are light, that we illuminate Christ that we set him up high so that people can see what we are about. You know, life-saving business is fun. <laughs> I, I love being in the life-saving business. I always tell people, I think I would have been a firefighter or a police officer if I wasn't a preacher, because I, I like, I like to, to be there for people in their moments of need. And life-saving is great. I love to be in the baptistry. One of my favorite things in ministry is to help somebody make that confession of faith and to give their life to be buried with Christ and be raised to walk a new life. But you know what's even better than the life-saving business. It's the life-training business, and the reason why is it's such a rewarding thing to see somebody who is lost be found, and then now the found person go reach more that are lost. That's such a rewarding thing, to see this reciprocating process. That's why here at Bethany we say this. We get lost people saved, saved people pastored, pastored people trained, and trained people mobilized to reach reach the lost. You see, none of this happens, though, if we don't lift high the name of Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you're going to miss everything. So we believe Jesus is all we need. Jesus promised us some great reward if we do that. He, he related us to a vine and a branch in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. You're going to have success. But apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So around here, we want to we live in a way that those who know us but don't know God will come to know God because they knew us. Isn't that, isn't that what you want to do? The people that don't know God but know us, they see God in us, and so they too want to come to know the Lord. Now maybe for you, you're like, man, I was dragged in here this morning. Like, I am that person that just goes, I don't have any problems. Like, here's a, I, yeah, I, I hear you up here, but I have a pretty good life. And you kind of just think of Jesus as this, this feel-good thing. Like, right, a little bit of Jesus. Let's dip Jesus in my back pocket. If I need Jesus, like, he'll make me happy. Like, I'm having a bad day. I'll pull out a little Jesus, and I'll feel happy again, right? But if Jesus is only here to give us happiness, then those that are already happy that don't have Jesus, then they don't need Jesus, right? You see, Jesus is here for so much more. He is the answer to so much more than happiness. Jesus is, is everything that we need. And we believe that Jesus is all that, that you need. I, Jesus said it like this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, the, the Bible indicates it like this. There is a God who is altogether holy. There is a, a God who is perfectly just. There is a God who is perfectly righteous. There is a God who... Someday we will stand before and have to give an account to. You know, that God requires us to live a perfect life. A perfect life. Not to make mistakes, to be obedient, to be holy, to be just, to be full of mercy. That's, that's where there's a problem. If God is just and requires perfection from me and from you, and we come up short of that perfection, well, then we're going to have to, we're gonna have to deal with that. You know how you're going to have to deal with that? With eternal consequences. And if you're all right with that, if you say, you know what, I'm good. I, I, I'm, I think I'm living this out pretty well. Then you go on and keep on living. But know that someday you're going to stand before the Creator and you're going to have to give an account for what you've done. Now, some would say this. They're saying, so what? You're telling me Jesus is my ticket out of hell? You're just kind of preaching, uh, free, free ticket out of hell. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm preaching that. Now, that's not the only reason why I tell people about Jesus, but it's sure a hell of a reason, right? <laughs> uh, in today's culture, many don't truly believe that God is going to hold them accountable in their life. Like, we, we just don't think that God's going to hold us accountable. We just think, oh, someday I'm going to stand before God, and he's going to be like, you did a lot of good things. Yeah, good job. Yeah, come on in. The scripture tells us quite the opposite. It says, one sin or a million sins, we're all in need of a savior. <laughs> so, so, so we look at that and you go, well, I need a savior. I need, I need to, I know God, but for some of us, we're still struggling with the idea that we have a, a problem. You know, Jesus warned us towards that attitude. In the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus is, is speaking to some churches and he, he says this. He says, you say I'm rich. You say I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, kind of harsh when you think about it. But he goes on in verse 19 of that passage. He says, those whom I love. Can I tell you this? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. They have a problem. We 
have problems. You have a problem. I have a problem. We all have problems. That problem is sin, and that problem has consequences. God will judge, but God can save. You can be saved by how you answer that question. Do you know him? Think about that question. Really think about it. Do you know him? What's your answer? Do you know the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the answer.